Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where this week we look back at some of the key defence and security issues that have shaped 2020. The book for this hasn't been written. We, we, are, we, are, we are writing the book uh, um, day by day, but, but what I will say is we've got the right team, we've got the right people, both NHS staff and military staff. We've got to bring lots of different uh, experiences together. Any problem that could undermine our ability to use our own systems competitively, anything that could get after the information on those systems. This government is committed to increasing defence spending. We're going to spend more in defence each year. Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank RUSI, will be joining me and we'll be hearing from some of the people in defence who've left their mark on this extraordinary year. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. But first, there's no question that the defining issue for the armed forces in 2020 has been the COVID pandemic. The impact it had on deployments and training both in the UK and overseas and the support the military has given civilian authorities in the fight against the disease. Back at the beginning of March, it came up in a discussion between the former Chief of the General Staff, General Lord Dannett, and Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. We only support the civil authorities out of our spare capacity. And, of course, our spare capacity is much reduced. Um, go back 10 years ago, the army, for example, was uh, over 102,000, and now it's around 73,000. So the spare capacity that might have been there years ago really isn't there now. But again, um, we are all citizens, albeit citizens in uniform, and if the nation, if the government requires us to get stuck in to help the community at large, it's part of our job to do that. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is is listening. It's an interesting thought here, isn't there, General, that we are in exercises such as what do we use the military for, whether it's sandbags or whether it's something to do with a, a virus, society starts to rethink, perhaps we ought to have a longer think about this. Uh, and in the future. So, for example, uh, best people to fill sandbags and help people along a stretch of river that's overflowing, probably TA, probably people with local knowledge, probably people with easy access that you can move in, move out. Because getting back to the basic idea of using the military, it's there in this very sort of formal sense, an aid to the civil power. It is that important you can deploy anywhere in a security role and it has a different sort of sense than it does when you're filling up sandbags or in this case what we're having seeing at the moment well our reporter james hurst went to the excel center in london where the first nightingale hospital was taking shape and spoke to some of those involved i'm an intensive care nurse by background so i've helped design this with my fantastic intensive care nurse and doctor colleagues so this is modeled on an intensive care unit, bed space in any other NHS hospital. Eamon's day job is as chief nurse at the Royal Marsden, but he's also an army reservist major, and he's done similar jobs in field hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan. This, though, is still new. Nobody essentially has... Uh, the, the book for this hasn't been written. We, we, are, we, are, we are writing the book uh, um, day by day, but, but what I will say is we've got the right team, we've got the right people, both NHS staff and military staff, who bring lots of different uh, experiences together. So it really is the dream team. 
The construction of the Nightingale Hospital wasn't the only way the military was helping the NHS. It also provided vital protective equipment for the doctors and nurses on the front line. Across the UK and the world, new measures were introduced as the armed forces and military communities started to adjust to massive changes to their daily lives. Here's one example from Brunei back in April from BFBS's Jade Calloway. Entry into the country is still open only to Brunei nationals. The flight that we are all eagerly anticipating is one with special permission that's coming in later this week from Bryce Norton in the UK, which will see the return of more than 120 members of the British Forces Brunei community who'd been stuck outside of the country when those borders shut down. The setting up and running of mobile testing units became key work for the armed forces in the UK. In June, we heard from Commander Home Command, Lieutenant General Tyrone Urch. What the military does brilliantly well, if I might say, is planning. Planning is everything. The plan is nothing. And so what we have done is developed a whole series of contingency plans. And the very first contingency plan, bearing in mind six months ago we didn't have a COVID-19 contingency plan, what we did have is a flu pandemic plan, And we use that as the basis for our planning to deliver a force that could help out the government and do anything that the government wanted us to do. Bearing in mind we are 100% in support of other government departments. Brigadier Lizzie Faithful Davis, commanding officer of 102 Logistic Brigade, told us in July they were working closely with the civilian authorities on mobile testing. One of the main purposes of the mobile testing units is that they can move more quickly to locations that that are more difficult to reach. Uh, So normally our troops are held at 12 hours notice to move. So if we can uh, know where we need to send them the night before, normally they can be in a new location uh, the next day. It's a fine balance between managing um, pre-programmed testing where people will have already booked from the evening before. But we do hold a number of units in reserve so that that they can be deployed at short notice uh, if there's an urgent need. And just very briefly, it's a very different front line than any soldier expected. How do they view what they're doing? I think for the soldiers, it's been quite a rewarding task. It's something very different from anything they've ever had to do before. But we've had over 20,000 soldiers and military personnel at readiness for the coronavirus crisis. And really, I think for most soldiers, to be doing something is better than doing nothing. And I think with the mobile testing units and the support to the regional test sites as well, where they've been able to physically do something, during this crisis, they felt they've been able to contribute in a small way uh, to helping the general public. Military planners and logistics experts have been key. Major General Simon Hutchings is Director Joint Support at UK Strategic Command's Defence Support Organisation. I asked him this month what lessons he'd taken away from their response. The first is data and data accessibility. You know, we were stymied to a great extent because we've got some quite... Uh, ancient and uh, and long in the tooth uh, logistic information systems in defence. And so it was very difficult to extract the data and present it into into MOD main to be able to make some dynamic decisions around those relative priorities. Um, So that would be my first takeaway, uh, the importance of data accessibility. Uh, The second I just talked to, and that was relationships, you know, the need for um, to build and sustain enduring relationships uh, you know, both across defence and and with your key suppliers. The the other that I talked to was the the balance between uh, effective and efficient, uh, and and the corollary to that is is resilient. So too often in designing and creating supply chains, we focus on the efficiency aspect of it 
rather than having sufficient resilience to make it effective during times of crisis. So, you know, we're looking again at whether we've got the balance of that right, ultimately. I would also offer the skills of our people. You know, logistics as a profession hasn't always been as valued as I think it ought to be. Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank RUSI, is with me now. Um, Michael, we've heard there of the challenges and lessons learnt over months of this pandemic. What impact has it had on the armed forces, do you think? I think it's um, certainly made the armed forces more aware and I think more keen to be involved in as it were, homeland resilience, not not homeland defence so much, because this is still military aid to the civil power, military aid to the civil authority, MACA. And the, the military is always very careful not to exceed, appear to exceed its authority, always to work in support of civilian organisations, which it, it certainly does. But the military also know that in this modern era, they have got to be self-evidently working for the community um, because our security is now much more concentrated on domestic issues. You know, look at crime, at uh, the impact that social media can have, the impact that the virus can have, the impact that uh, the Chernobyl uh, reactor disaster had in 1986. You know, things that happen a long way away can impact our own people. And so the idea that the military are all part of the government's response, they're not just a, a force that is sent over overseas to do things occasionally, um, that's actually quite important. And I think there's a there's a morale sense as well. Uh, as your correspondent said, the military like to be doing something. They like to be out and about in the community. And they, they do get, undoubtedly, I've seen it myself in many uh, different operations, they love being out doing something with the public because the public respond very positively to them. Yeah, and what impact do you think it's had in terms of the relationship between defence and other parts of government in dealing with the pandemic? That is a problem in the sense that most civilian parts of government don't want the military to come in because it looks as if they've lost control, that they can't really do it, that the military only come in as a last resort. And we saw that in the, the Olympic Games in 2012 when the security had just basically collapsed and the military came in and, and did it brilliantly. And, and one of the things that we've got to take forward out of this is that you know military planning should be part of the suite of capabilities which all government departments that have to do this sort of thing can rely on rather than wait until it's almost too late work with the military earlier on and I think that's one of the the lessons that, that will come out of the review next year and, and will take a bit of doing because you know the military is a wonderful instrument but when it does things it does them as it were at scale and quite expensively um, but nevertheless it always gets the job done and we're going to see more of the military next year wait till the floods start in January February mm. they will be they'll be on our streets filling sandbags turning up where you need need them for the next couple of months during what looks as if it's going to be quite a difficult winter. Michael, stay with us. The new year should see the publication of the conclusions of the government's Integrated Security Defence and Foreign Policy Review, first announced by the Prime Minister a year ago and described as the biggest review since the end of the Cold War. Lord Sedwill, the former National Security Advisor and Cabinet Secretary, who stepped down in September, spoke to SITREP about the changing nature of the threat. We are now in an era of intensified state and system competition. The coronavirus um, epidemic globally has probably intensified some of those rivalries, as we've, as we've seen, notably a much sharper uh, relationship now between China and the United States. We have in this hemisphere in particular the intensified efforts by the Russian state to uh, disrupt Western societies operating across all domains, not just the traditional land, sea and air 
expert space, cyberspace, and indeed the information space, uh, trying to disrupt uh, democratic systems and, uh, uh, and politics uh, and so on. Uh, and so we need you know, this. This review is going to have to be ready to deal with all of that. In November came the Prime Minister's announcement of a £16.5 billion boost in defence spending over the next four years, including investment in cyber and space. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. It'll enable us to, to modernise uh, by investing in the new domains that currently pose quite a threat to our way of life. So space, uh, where we are becoming increasingly dependent, but also therefore increasingly vulnerable. You know, we rely so much on satellites, for example, both for our military communication, but on our day-to-day, you know, everything from cash points rely on uh, a, a space sort of coordination to GPS to everything else, and also in the areas of cyber, because our adversaries are investing heavily in that and are using sort of what we'd call the sub-threshold area to constantly already attack us uh, and we need to make sure we defend against that. The government has warned throughout the year that hostile actors were taking advantage of the pandemic to launch cyber attacks de- designed to damage UK interests. In the summer, the British Army formed its first cyber regiment to protect defence networks at home in the UK and overseas. The 13 Signal Regiment was refor- reformed for the task. Brigadier John Collier, the commander of 1st Signal Brigade, told SITREP back in June that the regiment will include different specialisms. We're in a race. We all are. And I think uh, I think you'd recognise that as well in terms of uh, recruiting, attracting, selecting and, uh, and really driving forward with some pretty good brains, some pretty good brains who are technically adept. Uh, they're what you, what you might call cyber match fit. They're imaginative. They're entrepreneurial uh, and have got that real draw towards being the best that they can be. So finding them from our existing portfolio, they're out there and they're good. We need more and we need to embellish them and support them and drive forward really to keep in that race uh, and keep at the leading edge of it. And where are the threats coming from? If you couched it as anything, any problem that could undermine our ability to use our own systems competitively, anything that could get after the information on those systems, both the integrity of it or indeed the relative confidentiality of it. So those threats can manifest themselves in so many different ways, right from um, even a normal user like you and I uh, could have an impact on those capabilities, wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, and then it climbs up a sort of sophistication ladder all the way through to would-be adversaries, the curious, the hobbyists, and then right up towards the top end in terms of uh, right up to even state-based threats that would demonstrably actively try to do that kind of or offer that kind of impact that I describe. So it's the full range. In 2016, the government set up the National Cyber Security Centre to combat threats. Kieran Martin led it for four years and we spoke to him in September just after he stood down. I asked him about a report from MPs on the Intelligence and Security Committee suggesting the government had badly underestimated the Russian threat, a claim the government denied. Speaking personally, in the six and a half years that I ran cybersecurity for the UK government, Russia was the ever-present constant threat. It increased over the course of that period. We tracked it incessantly. We 
um, protected several major electoral events. We find Russia on energy systems, on telecommunication systems, and with partners in the US, Canada, Australia, and elsewhere, we outed those. So when I think of the huge amount of operational success and also operational effort against Russia over that period, I get that there will be concerns about to what extent um, did the government take the threats um, seriously enough strategically and so forth. But just from an operational point of view, I can't really recognise a picture that says we weren't taking Russia seriously because we were flat out on Russia for years. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee gave me his assessment of the UK's cyber capabilities. Cybersecurity is something which we do rather well. But the important thing is to remember it's going to get, it's going to get trickier, it's going to get better and other people are going to get better. And I think that's important is the speed at which people are changing, the speed at which they catch up now. What we're seeing is that is the digitalization of something which we've always done, and that's finding out what other people are doing, finding out if other people and who is doing it, and what are the details and who is organizing it, and where it fits in, for example, with operational plans. You look at a, a NATO exercise now in continental Europe, um, you begin with cybersecurity. Well, space as a domain is also becoming more important, but what do we mean when we talk about the possible militarization of space? In November, we heard from Alexandra Stickings, Research Fellow for Space Policy and Security within the Military Sciences team at RUSI. The US has been quite uh, direct that it considers space to be a warfighting domain. And we see that with uh, the way that they, they react to um, you know, testing of capabilities by, by China and Russia, uh, and also the development of their own capabilities. And the way that they talk about space, um, always the predator, never the prey, is, is a phrase I've heard come out. NATO, on the other hand, has declared space as an operational domain. And my, my opinion of that difference is that it, it's recognizing the role that space is playing, um, as I mentioned, you know, whether that's through navigation or ISR communications, and about how better to integrate the space capabilities of NATO members into operations, how, how you're talking about interoperability and, and that effective use of space, rather than using space in a more direct warfighting capacity. We use space for warfighting on the ground, but it is, I guess, about not crossing that line, not wanting to cross that line into direct action in space. The Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sinek Carter, emphasised the need for the armed forces to modernise in a key speech in late September. We must chart a direction of travel from an industrial age of platforms to an information age of systems. Warfare is increasingly about a competition between hiding and finding. It will be enabled at every level by a digital backbone into which all sensors effectors and deciders will be plugged. This means that some industrial age capabilities will increasingly have to meet their sunset to create the space for capabilities needed for sunrise. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, Labour has welcomed the money but says it's a spending announcement without a strategy. The government says it will extend British influence and protect the public. We know there's a black hole in defence budgets. How far can it stretch? Well, um, the black hole, according to the National Audit Office, is something between six billion and thirteen billion. But that's not as bad as it sounds, because at the moment they're saying, it, "Well, it's six billion over the next ten years." 
And if all of the chickens came home to roost, if everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and the MOD didn't do something about it, it could be as big as 13 billion. Now, you know, that's nothing to be proud of, but it, it's as black holes go, uh, that's not so big. But the fact is that the MOD is off track again with its expenditure on equipment. It's its 10-year equipment programme for which it's, you know, it's spending uh, 190-odd billion uh, over the next 10 years. So it's got to get that programme back on track. And the worry was that this, ex this, this uh, increase in defence expenditure, which was nothing like as much as 16 billion when you broke it down, in cash terms it's about 10 billion between now and uh, 2025. That's fine. That's more than, more than we might might ever have expected. But the, the, the worry is that that money is actually going to be spent on, as it were, making up, get, getting the equipment program back on track. And this is the equipment program we decided on in 2015, and that not enough mm -hmm. of that money will be spent on what the CDS calls the sunrise capabilities. Um, that's the worry among analysts. And we're still waiting for the conclusions of the integrated review. What are the decisions to be taken about the army? Well, um, the army is, in a way, it's gone back into the mixer because we, we can see where the Navy is heading strategically based around the carriers. We can see what the Air Force is doing. The army is still having to rework its contribution in a way. Um, and the question, the big simple question is how much of a heavy force will we deploy, a, gr a, a force capable of you know, armoured warfare operations at scale, as opposed to a force that is extremely modern, uh, very um, cutting edge in its ability to um, disperse and be mobile. Um, but that may mean that it's a lighter force. And the mm. army's got to, in a sense, rethink also, what is its strategic contribution? Is it to be an expeditionary force that can go to the Gulf or somewhere else to do a job? Or is it fundamentally to defend Europe in the, in the way that we've always thought about it since 1940? And that actually seems to me to be still, as it were, whizzing around inside the, the defence establishment, even at this late stage, even though we're only now uh, six weeks away, maybe eight weeks away from the announcement of the integrated review, I do find it surprising that we're not more mm. clear on what the role of the army will be. Yeah, you say, you say we can see what the RAF are doing. What are the decisions to be taken about the RAF? Well, the RAF uh, has got decisions already announced that it confirms the uh, the, the F-35 as the, the new um, new generation, fifth generation aircraft, although still not quite, we don't quite know what the numbers of that will be. Uh, confirmation of Typhoon uh, upgrades and modernization. The RAF will also run the Space Command. Uh, which will, as you, you indicated in the in the reports, be a pretty important um, area. Ali Stickings was making the point that that uh, space really is a, a new domain of warfare in which we are very vulnerable, and we've got to do something about it. So the RAF is is as confirmed in those roles. What we still don't know is how much lift the RAF will have, heavy lift, um, the Puma helicopters, and you know how many of the A400s and the C C17, the C5s, um, where we will be with the RAF's mobility and there is some suspicion, uh, lots of gossip, that there may be some cuts in those um, areas and that they may be regarded as sunset capabilities rather than sunrise capabilities.
And the spending announcement had details of more ships for the Navy. Yes, um, in a way, the the announcement was a confirmation of everything the Navy wanted in its current equipment program. So it looks as if we will have two aircraft carriers that can operate simultaneously. It looks as if the government intends that the escort fleet shall grow from 19 probably to 24. The Defence Secretary mentioned the Type 32. Everybody rushed around saying, what's that, Type 32? Hmm. Never heard of it. And of course, what he means by that is, well, the Navy's got to decide what it wants. But we do mean that we will actually spend some more on more frigates. So it looks as if we're we're looking at an escort force of maybe 24 ships, which is consistent with the idea of having carrier battle groups. And and so in a way, the Navy is going to put all of its eggs or most of its eggs in two baskets. There may Mm -hmm. be more submarines with with the view of um, the the vulnerability of undersea cables is a worry. And we may look at more submarines, more fleet support ships. And since the uh, the announcement, it's also been confirmed that the two assault ships, the Bulwark and the uh, HMS Albion, will be retained until their normal out-of-service dates of, of uh, 2033 and 2034. So the Navy gets, in a sense, what it has wanted since 2015. But that mm-hmm. has quite big strategic implications because we are now going for a fairly maritime strategy. And mm-hmm. it's not clear to me that where the Navy is going and where the Army may want to go are entirely consistent. And just briefly, how would you assess the year for NATO? NATO is has got lots of challenges. I mean, NATO you know, is very happy that uh, President Trump is stepping down, that President Biden will be a, a new voice. But President Biden will be asking the same sort of questions that President Trump asked. He'll ask them in, in a different way, but they are the same questions. And Britain has said very sensibly that we must step up and lead NATO. It's in our interests. It's in NATO's interests. We've really got to make to reinvigorate NATO for the 2020s. But to do that, we've got to pay the price in terms terms of what we commit to NATO militarily. And I'm still not convinced that that politicians have quite got that message yet. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you in our New Year programme when we'll be looking at the impact of Brexit on defence and security. How to handle complaints in the armed services has been a long-running issue. In 2016, Nicola Williams was appointed as the first service complaints ombudsman. She leaves her position at the end of this year and spoke to SITREP this month about the disproportionately high number of complaints from women and people of black, Asian and ethnic minority background. Of the recommendations that I have made in the annual reports, A recommendation concerning that particular issue is one of the first ones that I ever made as Ombudsman. And in terms of the numbers, it has always been that although women and people of black, Asian, minority, ethnic background are a relatively small proportion of the total UK armed forces, they are higher proportion in their numbers within the service complaints um, field. So more people make service complaints that fall within those two groups. The numbers are reducing slightly, but not enough. They're still disproportionate. must be a source of some frustration to you. It is a source of frustration in the sense that, as I've said, that was an early recommendation that was made uh, in three and a half years ago, and it's still outstanding. Mm. I do not consider it to have been substantially complied with, although there has been some effort to comply with it by the MOD. I'm not saying nothing has been done, but the progress has been frighteningly slow. 
In a statement, the MOD told us, we care about the well-being of our personnel and carefully consider every complaint. It went on to say, we will be implementing reforms early next year to allow us to deal with complaints more quickly and effectively. It's been a year of significant anniversaries, including 75 years since VE Day, the nuclear attack on Japan and VJ Day, and 80 years since the Battle of Britain, the Blitz and Dunkirk, anniversaries which we've reflected on the programme. Our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, spoke about his father, who was at Dunkirk. My old man, my pa, he could easily have been in the 4,000 that didn't make it back. He'd been shot up quite badly. He was on the beach. He'd been shot up quite badly. And what you've got to imagine is that in the shallow water, you've got these rowing boats, which have to row soldiers out to trawlers, etc., which then eventually row, row them out to destroyers to get them back to the UK. And uh, Pop sort of got into this boat, and he was bleeding over the whole of the British Army. I mean, he was so wounded. And he thought that what happened, they thought, well, this guy's not going to make it to the next stage. And he was gently tipped over the side and back into the water. And there he was flapping around in the water as best he could when this boat took a direct hit, all gone. And he was picked up by somebody else who, because there is in the water, they didn't realise how badly wounded he was. Put him in another boat, he got back to the UK and the Navy saved his life on the way back in a destroyer. I said to him, uh, that was hard luck, wasn't it? And he said, no, but you start feeling the guilt thing. Why shouldn't I have been in the boat? Christopher Lee there. And finally, the story of Captain Sir Tom Moore struck a chord with many this year. He was knighted by the Queen in July during an open-air ceremony at Windsor Castle after the Second World War veteran raised almost £33 million for the NHS. In April, a hurricane and a spitfire flew over his home to mark his 100th birthday. I'm one of the few people here who've seen a, a hurricane and spitfires flying past in anger. Fortunately, today, they're all flying peacefully. Captain Sir Tom Moore there. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot. Thank you to all of our guests in 2020. We'll be back on the 7th of January with a look ahead to what's likely to be another unpredictable and challenging year for defence. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. See you in January. Bye-bye. Have a happy Christmas break. Oh,